You're all very familiar with Presbyterianism. You know that we have a few steps even in changing the name. We had to call a special uh, Presbyterian meeting to change our name. But now it is Heritage Associate Reformed Church. And we took this step, and we thought it was a good time to take this step. And I hope this is a, a word of encouragement to you. Uh, because just this last year, we were able to purchase our own facility. We had been meeting at a Methodist church downtown Springfield. And during COVID, <laughs> uh, good things came out of it for us as a, uh, to be kind, a more progressive church uh, was uh, decided to go online and to sell their facilities. And our church uh, took that opportunity to purchase the facilities. So your pastor today, well, actually, he probably is already, if he's not done yet, uh, preaching at our new facilities. And we've been in our new facilities uh, since the first Sunday of November. So we are still getting used to it and still getting things accomplished as far as getting our facilities up to speed. Uh, we have yet to even get our sign out on our, on our, on our signpost, uh, partly because of you know, the Presbyterian thing. We had to take a few minutes to make sure we got approval for our name, which, again, is Heritage. So we do thank you, and I know Heritage Associate Reformed Church, though we made no formal designation of such, our session in our church, I know, sends their greeting to you and does uh, hope and pray that the Lord will bless you as you continue to labor in Donovan, Missouri. I, I'm, I'm from Neosho, Missouri, so when I heard there was an OPC church in Donovan, I was amazed and, uh, and delighted at the same time. The word of the Lord today, we'll be preaching our scripture reading, comes from Micah, uh, chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, beginning with verse 1 and going to verse 6. Hear now the word of our God. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, we are too little to be among, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, from, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will rise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. This is the word of our God. Let us pray. Father, as we... Calm our hearts and minds before you once again this day, looking to you in prayer for your aid and your assistance. We do pray now that you will grant us the enlightenment of heart and mind that we need to be able to hear from your word, to be able to preach from your word, to be able to by faith hold to your word, and by faith do your word. Grant us this through the operation of the Holy Spirit on the work based upon the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. He started out uh, to fight political corruption, only to become the very thing he supposedly despised. 
Well, that can describe the plot of many a book or a movie, but is at least one of the major themes of the 1949 movie, All the King's Men. It's a story about the fictional character, Jack Stark, who would eventually become the governor of his state. Not only does this tale describe Stark's descent into political corruption, it also narrates the effects Stark's fall had upon those around him. People who admired him and sought to support him, who trusted in him, were eventually disappointed, even disgracefully used by him. So we see the corrupt politician, Jack Stark, eventually stealing the girlfriend of one of his trusting aides who had supported him and even continued to support him after this betrayal. Throughout this movie, we see Stark betraying those who had placed their trust in him to carry out great reform, <laughs> to reform the corruption of his state. The irony of the movie is that eventually at the end of the story, the brother of the very woman whom he had seduced would assassinate him. Misplaced trust led to much disappointment and misery. How true to life this is. Many a person, if not most people, have placed an unwise trust in human rulers only for it to end in disappointment and misery. Rather than receiving the aid and comfort, perhaps even the utopia these politicians promised them, they were left exploited, disappointed, perhaps even devastated. So is it any wonder that so many have such a cynical attitude toward human rulers? Yet, there is a human ruler, a king, in whom you can and must trust. Of course, I'm referring to King Jesus. We must place our trust in King Jesus as our sovereign Lord. But you might respond by asking why. Why must we so trust this king? Before us today are three reasons why we must place our trust in King Jesus. We must do so because he is the powerful king. The savior king. And finally because he is the sovereign king. We must trust in King Jesus because he is the powerful king. The prophet Micah has just prophesied a very dark day for the southern kingdom of Judah. As he says in verse 1, Now muster your troops, O daughters of troops. Get ready. Prepare your military. Because of this, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Here's your allotment at this point in time, O Judah. O Jerusalem, I am bringing the Assyrian Empire, the most powerful nation of that day, against you. They're going to invade your land and you're going to suffer the devastation that comes from invasion. And they're going to even come to the very capital city of the southern kingdom city of God. 
The city that God chose to place His name upon. The city that God chose to place His temple in. The city of God where He established His Davidic king to rule over His people. Jerusalem, prepare yourself. You're about to be besieged. We know from elsewhere in Scripture, though, that the Lord, while allowing Assyrian to ravage vast portions of Judah, He would and He did supernaturally eventually deliver Jerusalem from this Assyrian siege. Nevertheless, much pain and suffering had already been inflicted upon the people of God as they had proven to be an unfaithful, disobedient people. And yes, while Jerusalem at this moment in her history would experience deliverance, a supernatural deliverance, she would eventually be ransacked by the next powerful empire, the Babylonian Empire. And a part of the judgment that would fall upon her through the Babylonians as Babylon would become a tool, a weapon in the hands of her God, was that vast portions of her population would be exiled or led into captivity, away, away from the promised land. Yet, even at this early stage of God's declaration for His people's sin, the punishment the declaration of his punishment for his people's sins. The Lord gives his people a glorious promise of hope and ultimate deliverance. As the prophet declares in verse 2, <clears throat> But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And now I, ministering in the name of Christ, can and do declare to you that this promise has been fulfilled because as we've already read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, Matthew declares, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. As Herod, with murderous intent, sought to find where the rightful and true king of the Jews had been born. The religious leaders relying upon this very passage from Micah did declare to him that the rightful king, unlike him, the rightful king had been born and has been born in the town of Bethlehem. The king has come and he is the powerful king. This is the sort of king that he is. He's not just a powerful king. He is the powerful king. I say the because as verse 4, the first part of verse 4 indicates to us, 
His rule is one uniquely imbibed with the power of God, as Micah declares. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. This king rules and reigns over his people, the people of God, in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the Lord's name. In a way like no other king, this king is powerful to watch over, to protect, and to provide for his flock. For he reigns and rules in the strength of his God, our Lord. For this king is not an ordinary human king at all, but he is the eternal son of God who has clothed himself in our flesh and nature, being both man and God, and so experiences in his person both his humanity and his deity. Verse 2 may well hint at this, as the prophet does proclaim that his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, some will say, well, no, that's not referring to his eternity. That's referring to his being from Davidic stock. Well, even if that's the case, we know that the Old Testament was not unfamiliar with this idea of a divine human king. For Isaiah himself prophesied in chapter 9 of his book, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and a government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And make no mistake about it, those names are divine titles only belonging to one who is both completely human and completely God. So here is a king you can and must trust in. One who exercises his kingly office in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of his name. What this king has promised, he will fulfill. What aid this king does offer will prove sufficient for the need. What aspirations you have. What aspirations you have for a peaceable, prosperous, and pure kingdom. This kingdom is and will fulfill. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this king has already proven more than sufficient to deal with your greatest of needs. For this powerful king is also the Savior king. And that's the second reason we must trust in King Jesus, because he is the Savior king. Well, let's recall for a moment why it is the people of God are in the mess that they are in. It is because of their sins and transgressions. Rather than being a faithful people, they have broken God's covenant with them and have transgressed His holy and good law. So now, they have been judged through the rod of Assyria, 
and they will be judged to the rod of Babylon, which involved, as we've already stipulated, many of the people going into exile, into captivity, thus separated from the promised land and all the blessings associated with that holy dwelling. Even at this point, Micah says that such a judgment shall continue until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then comes the wonderful promise. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. This is a promise of restoration as the people of God are saved from the judgment of God. It is a restoration of the people of God as a united people, as the Lord will once again unite them together in his holy kingdom. It is thus also a restoration that speaks of a renewed kingdom of God on earth and a restoration of the glory of that kingdom. And underlying it all, it is a restoration that speaks of forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to the God to whom this people, to whom this people belong, as they are his covenant people. This would be a great restoration promised to the people of God, but how? How? How could a people who have so transgressed the law of God and broken his holy covenant experience such a great restoration? How could covenant breakers and law transgressors receive forgiveness of their sins and deliverance from the wrath of God and so experience such a great restoration? This was not, is not, and is not just a question for Israel of old, but for all of humanity, or at least a portion of humanity. For humanity and her first parents did transgress the commandment of God and became sinners, and so were exiled from God and have been left to suffer under His judgment. For those Jews and Gentiles elected by God, to be his particular people, his treasured possession. Let's make sure we understand. When we speak of election, we're not saying we're different in our goodness, as if we're innately good and therefore deserve God's election. Oh, no, no, no. When it comes to that, we are equal before the bar of God. We've all sinned in our first parents, Adam and Eve. In them we have been declared sinners and have become guilty and do inherit a corrupt nature. We've all transgressed the law of our God. Why did we have to confess our sins but a minute ago? We all, in our first parents, have broken the original covenant of works. How in the world, even as the elect of God, chosen before the foundation of the earth, how can you and I receive this promise of restoration? How? It is because our powerful king is also the Savior King. 
as the king of his people, as their provider, and as their protector. That's what a king does. You see, back in uh, 1 Samuel, when we see David going out to defeat Goliath, you know what we should take from that account? Not like we need to go out and be like David. No, 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 no. You've got that account wrong if that's what you think the scriptures are teaching you. It's teaching you quite the opposite. You cannot be like David. Why? Because you're not the king of God's people. For what do we see that man doing as the anointed king or will be anointed king? I think at this time he is anointed. He is providing and protecting for his people by slaying their enemy. That's what a good Davidic king does. He provides and he protects his people. And there is none like our Davidic king. Jesus, the Christ, the Lord of all. For he has come and he has defeated our greatest enemy, sin, death, and Satan. And he did so on the cross. And yes, this was even prophesied in the Old Testament as Isaiah, looking in that day, saw this. Surely he has been, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See this doctrine of particular atonement that our elder today was speaking and we were taught by Ligonier ministers. You see it all over the place. We see it here. He was pierced for everyone's transgressions, our transgressions. Who's the our? The people of God. That's how, that's how you and I as the elect of God, as the people of God, can experience this great restoration because Jesus, the Christ, the Lord, the King, is the and our Savior King. He did bear our sins and our iniquities. He did receive in His body the chastisement for our sins so that you and I today can hear the words of assurance. And smile with joy in our hearts. And know that we are forgiven. That we have been united as the people of God in Christ. And as the united people of God, we are even now being restored to our God in Christ. As Paul himself says in Ephesians chapter 2 beginning with verse 14. For he himself, who's the he? Jesus Christ is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. No more Jew, no more Gentile. No, no, there's one new man and this new man. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby 
healing the hostility. This is how we can participate in this great promise of restoration. It is because our King is our Savior. We do have the promise of restoration because our King is the Savior King who has given his life over to death to make atonement for our sins. For all who have believed or will believe and rest in him alone, they will receive his great salvation. And this is the gospel call to all mankind. We preach this to every creature under the heavens. If you will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and place your trust in him and him alone and so receive from him, you will this great salvation. For all who have placed their trust in him as their Savior King, they have been saved, united together, and reconciled to our God. Through his great salvation, we do experience the promise of restoration. So we must trust in Jesus because he is the Savior King. But finally, I think too often in our preaching of the gospel, we stop there. We love to talk about reconciliation, salvation, in the terms of the present reality of our forgiveness of sins. But that's not the whole gospel, is it? For we have something promised to us that we wait for. In the now, we have experienced His great salvation and the beginning fruits of sanctification, but we still long for something, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. We cry out for it in our most inmost hearts. What is that? We must trust in Jesus, King Jesus. Because he is the sovereign king. What is that? Well, let's go back to our passage in Micah. If you were living, think about this. If you were living in a besieged city, a land beset by warfare and suffering the devastating effects of invasion, invasion, what better message could you hear than what we find in the last part of verse 4 when Micah says, this is the promise, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great. The he being that king that Mike has been speaking of. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. The coming of the king would mean the restoration, not just of his people to one another and to God, but the restoration of the kingdom. A kingdom of peace, righteousness, and justice. As we find Isaiah himself declaring in chapter 9, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Of course, in the context of Micah's day, Living securely would mean no more external threats to their well-being as the people of God. This is what verses 5 and 6 
indicates, when Micah goes on to describe how the Assyrians, the very people now being used by God to discipline his people, how they would eventually be defeated and never again threaten the people of God. When the king comes, Micah is saying, you will now live securely in your land. But notice that's the mechanism by which this peace is secured. It is so secured because the promised king is a sovereign king over the whole earth. That's what the prophet means when he says he shall be great to the ends of the earth. This king is not just going to rule over a small part of the world. This king has been given the Davidic promise of Psalms chapter 2. He will rule and reign over every nation under the earth. That's the promise. His greatness is his sovereign rule over the whole of the earth. Such a rule that the people of God will live securely with no threat to person or property. Our King Jesus has come. And even now he does provide us with the security of our salvation. This sovereign king does shepherd our souls so that we are guaranteed security in this great salvation. As Jesus himself declared, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You might say today, I'm such a weak and frightful Christian. However will I persevere through such and so many toils and snares which come my way? It is because... Your sovereign king does lead you and guarantee to you that he will bring you into his eternal kingdom. This should be our testimony. This was the testimony of Paul as we find in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 8. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. In that context, uh, Paul's facing death. And we believe that he was not spared death. That he faced the lion. And he died in a dramatic way. But that's not what Paul's referring to. He's not referring to being spared evil deeds in the sense that you'll not have to face trouble or trials. Our prosperity gospel friends have it all wrong there. What he is saying, no matter what comes my way, no matter what 2021 we might face this year, whatever political repercussions we're facing, whatever economic repercussions we're facing, Whatever physical problems, diseases, viruses, 
Nothing. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Saints of the living God, we've got to have a better understanding of our eschatology. What our promise is, is not when after we die, we go to heaven. That is part of our guarantee. (coughs) But the promise, the hope of the gospel, is that one sweet day, the Lord Jesus Christ himself will return. And he whether we're alive or dead, but especially, let's think of it as if we're dead and six feet under or whatever state we might be in. When he calls us forth, we will come forth. We will be resurrected. And as he promised in Matthew chapter 5, we will inherit this earth. That is the hope of the gospel. Whatever I might face in 2021, whatever I might lose, whatever I might suffer, whatever might happen to mind, body, in any shape or form, he promises to secure me in my salvation. And part of that, and a great part of that, is he's going to lead me into eternal life. That is his kingdom. And make no mistake, it is a kingdom of peace, prosperity, and abundant joy. A kingdom that as soon as a tear should appear in your eye, according to Revelations, the Father himself will wipe it away. This is what it means to serve the sovereign king. And that's why we, regardless of what comes our way this year, we must trust in our Sovereign King. We must trust in Jesus Christ because He is the powerful King. He is the Savior King. And He is the Sovereign King. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful to You this uh, morning, turning into afternoon, for all Your many blessings we have in Christ Jesus, especially that our King has come, that He is powerful, powerful to save, preserve and to lead us into his kingdom where his rule which now is invisible shall be made visible and not just over this earth as we know this promise is fulfilled he's not just king of the earth he's king of all creation it is through his name we do now pray and give thanks amen turn it over to you now